Good afternoon. Today is Monday, the 16th of October, 2023. We're a few minutes after one o'clock. Apologies for that. Uh, but uh, delighted you're, you're all joining us for today's UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by David Scott uh, from north of the border and uh, Mark Anderson from the United States. Now, we've got a very busy news. There is a lot of very emotive issues. Um, so stay with us. Um, principally, we recognize the suffering of a great many people in the Middle East, and we're going to try and come into this in an even-handed way. David, you've got an initial report over uh, hostages and, uh, and Gaza. Yeah, so this is an update from Indian Express, which is uh, a, a pretty factual in these matters. So it's reporting Israel-Hamas War Day 10. 199 hostages have been held in Gaza, says Israel military. Uh, it also reports um, that uh, media reports have said, has stated that United Nations shelters in Gaza have run out of water amid the Israeli blockade. Israel has denied reports that a ceasefire has been agreed, unfortunately, to allow for foreigners to move out of the besieged Gaza enclave and for entry of aid. Hospitals in Gaza Strip are set to run out of fuel in the next 24 hours, warned the UN's humanitarian office days after Israel cut off fuel, water and food and electricity to uh, the neighbourhood in retaliation for the Hamas attack last week. At least 4,000 people, 2,600 Palestinians and 1,400 Israelis have been killed and 10,000 injured in the ongoing war. So that's where we are today. No movement in, to start any ground offensive yet, uh, but obviously that's expected quite soon. Okay, David, thank you for that. Well, I chose Forbes for an initial headline, and here we've got it, Israel-Hamas conflict, the grim statistics after a week of war. And if we just put in some of their figures, uh, it's saying more than 400,000 is the number of displaced people in Gaza, so immense suffering there. Uh, nearly 12,000 for the number of wounded on both sides. Um, death toll, 3,500. Uh, where they were saying Israel 1,300 and Gaza accounting for at least 2,215 and 800, the rough number of people who've left Gaza, which is obviously extremely small, and 150, the estimated number of hostages. Uh, so there is some difference between the figures, but the um, Gaza Health Ministry uh, put out that figure of 2,750 Palestinians killed and 9,700 wounded in Israeli strikes on Gaza since October the 7th. And just to echo David's point, this was the BBC an hour or so ago, Israel and Hamas deny Gaza ceasefire. And I think we have to label that a very sad reality. Now let's move into some more of the detail and I'll pass back to you, David. Well, over the weekend, there's been a lot of demonstrations with a lot of people taken to the streets. So we see here Euronews reporting there's been, uh, th there have been marches um, uh, both in favour of Israel and in favour of the Palestinians uh, in many European cities. Um, generally speaking, the, the, the large crowds have been out in favour of the, the, the Palestinian cause. Um, they say, they report here that demonstrations passed off peacefully. Uh, London police have threatened anyone to, that was openly supporting Hamas would be arrested. Uh, the Hamas obviously is a, a certified uh, terrorist organisation in the UK. While well, Frankfurt Court cited security concerns in an order prohibiting a pro-Palestinian march. 
Um, so generally, it's been peaceful, which is which is very good. There's been a few scuffles and 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 a little bit of trouble, but not very much, which is uh, which is all to the good. Um, what's missing, of course, is is the marching for peace, right? Because these are marching marches for uh, a side in the conflict. Uh, they're marches for um, they're very partisan. Anyone who turns up with the wrong colour flag stands a chance of being roughed up. Um, they are not marching to call for an end to conflict and for actual peace. Um, so that's a, a, a sad reality. So what we're seeing is the, the split, the division, um, reflected across the world, across Europe, not just in the Middle East. Okay, thank you for that. And I think we've got a, a video. Well, we'll just put just oh, before, uh, just, okay. just wanted to mention, David, uh, I mean, if we're looking at what was going on in London, um, I thought it was quite stark, the, the difference in numbers between those, uh, you know, I, I take your point about the uh, the partisan nature of, of the two demonstrations, but but the Palestinian or the, the, the people uh, um, coming out uh, to say that the problem with the Palestinians had to end, that, that crowd was significantly bigger than the uh, pro-Israeli uh, rally. And uh, the, the sort of numbers we were seeing there were similar to lockdown protests, actually. I mean, there was, there was certainly into the hundreds of thousands or over 100,000, I think, in London was the sort of figure I saw. And uh, the, the, the pro-Palestinian marches were very much larger. And, of course, this is playing into essentially uh, British and European and Western politics where... The, the Palestinian cause has been uh, a, a darling of the left. It has been viewed as uh, an example of, of, of the oppressed versus the oppressor. And this, is, this has been playing in politics in the UK and across Europe and across America uh, for many years. So this has untapped all of that pent-up uh, political activism. And we're seeing that on the streets. Okay, so where does that take us? Well, um, it takes us to uh, the uh, back to Israel to what's actually happening on the ground, and one of the things which is uh, which is different this time. This, there are many things different about this pro uh, about this this conflict. If you look at 1973, there was very little international involvement, almost none. Um, Britain had a complete arms embargo, um, for example. Um, this is not the same now. We're seeing much more deployment of international troops, British and American, particularly American troops, to um, to Israel or to the area around Israel. So here we've got uh, an Israeli pastor, a Christian pastor uh, of of Jewish extraction. So um, his his mindset is is very sympathetic towards the, the the Jewish people, but he's probably faced quite a bit of persecution from Jewish. Uh, authorities or um, uh, influence within the country, because being a Christian pastor in, in in Israel is not is not an easy number. Uh, and uh, as a Christian, he's got a reasonably neutral view of things. So he's reporting on what he sees from his base in the Galilee. Uh, the small extract I've got here uh, is he's talking about the American deployment to Israel. They were also very surprised to see U.S. military support. When I say military support, may I tell you, 
there are U.S. troops on the ground here. There's U.S. troops here, there's U.S. special forces, there's U.S. airplanes, there's U.S. Am ammunition, there's U.S. Uh, you know, naval vessels. The United States military is in its full presence here. And that one, Hezbollah and Iran did not see coming. Um, so just to back up that point, and this is the point that Mike was making on Friday as well, uh, here we see a, uh, a tweet from US Central Command uh, detailing the 354th Fighter Squadron the A-10 Thunderbolts uh, have arrived in the region, um, and this is supporting other A-10s from the 75th Fighter Squadron who are already there. And we have Air and Space Forces magazine reporting on F-15s uh, landing in the Middle East. Uh, these come from RAF Lakenheath, and they are the 494th Expeditionary Fighter Squadron. Uh, so they are also in theatre. And as we have been reporting um, uh, last week, uh, there's a major ma naval presence in the United States as well. So here we see the USS Eisenhower. This is the second carrier strike group is now headed to Israel. Uh, quoting uh, United States Secretary of Defense uh, Lloyd Austin, this has been done to deter any state or non-state actor seeking to escalate this war. Um, so uh, this is uh, from the Jewish News Syndicate here. Uh, this, they, they report the strike group includes the guided missile cruiser USS Philippine Sea, guided missile destroyer destroyers USS Gravely and USS uh, Mason, and the carrier Air Wing 3 with nine aircraft squadrons uh, all, and all associated um, support staff. So this is part of the efforts to deter hostile actions against Israel or any efforts towards widening this war following the Hamas attack on Israel. So what we must take from that is this is a, an implied threat to Hezbollah, to Syria, to any surrounding nation that if they're going to escalate, if they're going to, um, if they're going to get involved in this war, presumably they're going to be dealing with the United States Air Force as well. Keep going. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll... Okay. <laughs> go ahead, David. Well, I mean, it's just, I just I paused to see if you wanted to add anything there. I, I, the point I'm making is that it, this is this is entirely new. Generally, when there's been trouble in the Middle East before 1967, uh, 1973, etc., there's been usually a bit of an arms embargo. There's been very great reluctance on powers to get involved. Usually, eventually, America has moved and, and made some supplies to the Israelis. 1973, these the Israelis were attacked. Uh, they were was certainly the victim of an attack, and they were they had mostly British armour. The, the Centurion tank being the finest battle tank of its age, uh, Britain wouldn't even supply spare parts. Such was the um, the the, uh, the 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 refusal to supply any weapons or to do anything that might escalate or or continue the war. This is entirely different this time. So we see the major powers quite happily getting involved and deploying very significant forces to the theatre and, and at the very, very least, rattling sabres very loudly. Um, the next point I want to make is that within Israel, the response to the, the horrific uh, uh, events of just over a week ago, and 
all of the funerals that are going through the country and all of the testimonies of first responders and medics and soldiers that are flooding the country has been a lot of rage, which is very dangerous, and also a, a hardening of, of the, even the moderates. So this, this, uh, this next video clip is Yossi Berlin, who was former justice minister in the Israeli government. Uh, he was very much a dove. He was a, a person who supported a two-state solution, who wanted to negotiate with the Palestinians. Um, he, he was a moderate in Israeli political terms. Um, we have here a little video of where he stands uh, on the conflict with Hamas. I never had hopes uh, to, to have peace with Hamas, ever. You will never, you can never quote me about it, a, a hope to have peace with Hamas. I mean, you know, these guys, for example, would never talk to somebody like me. For them, I am a symbol of the two-state solution. And this is, for them, a curse. It is not that there are Palestinians and, you know, we, we have to talk to our neighbors, we have to talk to them, we have to have peace with them, which is the case with the PLO. I mean, it's if you don't replace them, it will be ongoing hell and we cannot afford it anymore. Really, so, we cannot afford it. Is that but it will, if they are not there, in my view, it will enhance the chance to have peace in the region. So what we're seeing here is a, a, a very substantial hardening of opinion within Israel. And even the moderates, even the doves, are determined that Hamas must be eliminated from Gaza. Right? Now, this then brings us to the question of how is that achieved? And how is that achieved without massive loss of innocent civilian life or even military life? And this is where this next point uh, on a big here's in the Washington Post is reporting. Um, Israeli ground offensive in Gaza could be a bloodbath, analysts say. Oh, sorry, I beg, I beg, your, I beg your pardon. Sorry, I've, I've skipped ahead. I'm sorry, Brian. That, that, that's fine. There's a lot to cover, uh, David, and we've, also, we've all got a lot of thoughts in our heads today as we deliver this news. But I wanted to bring this in because I thought it was an incredible um, statement. Uh, but also the image, as I've looked across... Uh, certainly UK media, I'm not seeing a lot of pictures of the the scale of the attacks going into Gaza. We're seeing pictures of destroyed buildings, but we're not seeing the sheer horror of these very heavy bombing raids came, coming in. So this picture caught my attention. But then I was very interested in what the real story was. And we had this delightful young lady, uh, the Israeli ambassador, and she was defending uh, 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 Israel's military bombardment of Gaza. Now, I've just taken a couple of statements because I think there's some very interesting things here. Uh, she said that Hamas terrorists launched their attacks with no forewarning and slaughtered innocent unarmed Israeli citizens. She goes on to say that Gaza is not Israel's responsibility. We don't have any obligation to bring Gaza water. And then she's saying that 1,300 Israelis were targeted, slaughtered. They didn't get 24 hours to flee or protect themselves. And I look at the face of this young woman and I think to myself, my goodness, is your heart so hard? You have no compassion for people on either side who are now being slaughtered. So it was the look of the face. Is she a mother? Maybe she is or not. I don't know. But what a hard heart. And if I follow it up, uh, then we get a lesson because she said this, 600,000 Germans were killed in your attacks on Hamburg and Dresden. Why? 
because you knew this was the only way you could defeat the Nazis. So now we're in this world where everybody is going to throw at each other the horrors that have taken place in previous wars. Uh, but we could have a long debate about whether it was correct to do what we actually did with Hamburg and Dresden. But here we see horrors committed by the uh, British on the German civilian population are now dragged up to help justify brutality in Gaza. And I found this whole article particularly sad and really quite unpleasant. Okay, it's back to you, um, David, here, because you've got some yes. comments, I think, on risks. Yeah, so this, this is, sorry, I, I, I stuffed this too early. Um, this takes us to, there is a decision within Israeli society, which you saw there with, with the, the ambassador as well, that um, something has to be done in Gaza and, the, and there's not going to be too much worry about the collateral damage. Uh, albeit, to be fair, there's warnings and evacuation orders and warnings are being, are being given, um, albeit under very difficult circumstances because you're talking about trying to move a million people in a few days. Um, so the plan, we assume, is some sort of ground attack into Gaza. Now, what the Washington Post is, is alerting us to here is that that is by no means going to be an easy, an easy process. Um, so they're talking about it could be a bloodbath. Um, the, the report, Israeli, Israeli soldiers preparing for a ground offensive face a hellish thicket of tightly packed buildings, mines and tunnels while hunting Hamas militants who blend in among civilians, a precarious situation that could cause immense human suffering and draw other countries into the war, said US officials. Quote, I think it, they're going back in heavy and it's going to be a bloodbath for everybody, said uh, Frank McKenzie Jr., retired Marine Corps general who served as the US Chief of Central Command until last year. He predicted that the violence would be dragged out over a much longer period of time in the Hamas attack, uh, with the Israelis getting bogged down in messy unpredictability of urban warfare. And this is a point that is being, I think, missed in the desire for revenge, that, that revenge does not come without huge cost to both sides. Um, this, is, this is the sort of prospect that's ahead. and. I don't think that American general's wrong to talk about weeks or months, a much longer process, and the potential for the bloodbath is absolutely there. Okay, thank, thank you for that. Uh, we've, also, we've also got warning, other warnings here, death to Israel. Now, yes, yeah, so th this comes down to one of the questions, there are many, many questions about this. One of the questions that we were trying to grapple with is what happened to the IDF, what happened to the... the Shin Bet Security Service. Why was this not? There was no warning. There was no warning to the civilians. There was no preparation from the military. The the military uh, were caught completely unawares uh, by the attack last week. Now, a lot of people have said that they find that unbelievable, incredible. How could this happen? Um, it's to to somewhat add to that those questions. Uh, we have here a piece, an opinion piece from, again, the Jewish News Syndicate, dated the 13th of April this year. Okay, and um, as Mordecai Kedar uh, reports, he said, I hesitate quite a bit while to publish this piece because it might cause panic. However, the Middle East environment, particularly Iraq, 
uh, these things are known and serve as a topic of open discussion. So it's unthinkable that the Israeli public should not be aware of them as well. And he goes on to say, a source I've known from ye for years, an expatriate from the Middle East, a supporter of Israel who lives in Europe and is in continuous contact with people's, people in Iran and Iraq, conveyed to me their assessment that Iran plans to launch a combined attack on Israel in the foreseeable future that will include all the forces at its disposal in several Arab countries. He then goes on to describe what his interpretation of that attack might look like. And it's very similar to what actually happened. Um, he's talking about uh, uh, missiles, um, uh, um, unmanned aerial vehicles, a shower of missiles, um, and uh, as, as, the, as the opening salvo. Now, some things he doesn't get right. Some things he's, he's talking about forces from Syria and Lebanon and Gaza. Well, it was only Gaza, essentially. Um, it, but he did, he did talk about the taking of hostages. And uh, he talked about, um, amongst other things, the first phase being an aerial one, um, and then um, a coordinated ground attack with uh, infantry forces mounted on dirt bikes and all-terrain vehicles um, to attack Israeli ground forces and reach the Jewish settlements as quickly as possible, which is exactly what happened. So the fact that that's in the public domain uh, in April uh, certainly raises even more questions about what happened to the Israeli security forces and Israeli intelligence system that they didn't predict something like this if it was what would appear to be reported here, quite common uh, conversation uh, amongst anti-Israel groups in the surrounding countries. Okay, well, I just wanted to uh, mention this article uh, to kick off a little bit of discussion about this. So this is uh, from the Times of Israel saying, Iran threatens no one can guarantee control of the situation if Israel enters Gaza. Uh, Tehran condemns barbaric attacks in Gaza. Uh, with civilian uh, prisoners in Gaza as a priority. Uh, the US fears Iran could become directly engaged, says the White House, and of course this is presenting this all as a threat. Uh, now the first uh, paragraph of this says that for the, the Iranian foreign minister held talks uh, with the uh, Qatari emir uh, on Sunday, that was yesterday, uh, and uh, so I just wanted to, to make the point about what the Iranian uh, foreign minister actually said, and thanks to Vanessa for pushing this in my direction. So first of all, uh, he was talking about a prior meeting in Lebanon where he was speaking to the uh, Secretary General of Hezbollah, uh, Mr. Nasrallah, uh, and uh, that they were talking about all the potential scenarios that were all on the table for discussion. Uh, he said that we hope that political efforts will prevent the war from expanding, otherwise no one knows what will happen in the next hour. Uh, Iran cannot remain in a, spe a spectator in this situation, however, is what he was saying, uh, and that if America and Israel do not stop the current policy, the scope for the war cannot be stopped. Uh, if the scope of the war expands, heavy losses will befall America as well. Uh, and he said that uh, the continued aggression and the absence of a political solution add fuel to the fire uh, and things may get out of control. So I'm not... Uh, I'm afraid I can't uh, even come close to agreeing with the Times of Israel that this was threats from uh, Iran at all. This was uh, a rational, a rational look at uh, what the potentials, what the potentialities are. It seems to me, and 
and really several calls there for there to be a political solution to this. Absolutely. Uh, well, I'm just going to uh, bring up an email on screen um, that came into the uh, UK column. Um, this is from Priscilla. And uh, what is she saying? Well, she's saying, is there some way to stop the horrendous warmongering? Now, no sides are mentioned in her email, and I think this is very significant. Um, she's saying, who can organise a peace protest? But as David has already pointed out, that if the peace protests are partisan in nature, it doesn't really take us forward. So um, she is saying, what can we do about this? And of course, the main objective for people is to get the violence and the fighting stopped and to start the peace process and to get the negotiations going. And that is not going to happen by one side or the other being uh, um, completely partisan in its desires. Now, I wanted to bring this one up on screen. It's come in from Gaza. We know that um, families have been devastating in Israel as well, but I'm just taking it for its human interest side. So it's been sent to us uh, from Patricia. And uh, she's had an email from a friend who lives in Gaza City. And the email says very quickly, Gaza is destroyed. I don't know why they keep bombing because uh, what's even left last night, minute on minute on minute, nonstop barrage of bombing. Uh, it hasn't stopped today either. Fuel is nearly out from private generators. Food, bits and bobs. The bakery might be open, then it's shut. A small shop might open, but then it's shut. It's all a bit of a mishmash. Most stores are shut, to be honest. Uh, then she's talking about uh, a lady asking about food, uh, but we haven't been able to get vegetables. People are helping each other out, charging phones, helping with food. So everyone is surviving. We'll soon be isolated with no electricity when the last drop of fuel ends. The Israeli occupation circulates nonsense, but all I know is that we have to remain strong. Trust in Allah, God, and have faith we will get through this, if not for us, then for the children. And I thought that was a very poignant uh, email which should help us all focus that at the end of the day, of course, is the children who are suffering across the board in this region. Mark, uh, let's bring you in because you've got some comment, not surprisingly, from the American side, uh, but take us through what you're seeing. Yeah, from an American perspective, we have some interesting items. Good day, gentlemen. Uh, in this one from Responsible Statecraft, we have Biden refuses to talk ceasefire, though it could prevent a regional war. Uh, and this uh, writer, uh, Trita Parsi, uh, this is a man, um, kind of an unusual name. Uh, the subtitle is Strategic Malpractice for the White House to Give Israel Carte Blanche. Uh, when he knows that's Biden, it could drag the U.S. into a wider conflict. And we heard just a couple of minutes ago that there's apparently, from that pastor's viewpoint, far more American assets there than we generally realized. But America gives lots of money to Israel and probably keeps an eye on how that money is spent and then augments that military part of that of that money, what that goes into. Now, this article I just quoted is from the Quincy Institute. What is the Quincy Institute? Um, it says it aims to lead in a reconceptualization. That is, um, America has had this um, hegemonic stance in the world, intervening wherever it pleases. And the Quincy Institute would like to see a re reform of that to where they rethink you. 
policy assumptions in the U.S. would take a more stand down, more neutral stance in the world and not be such a hegemon, not be such an aggressor in many ways. And uh, moving on from there, uh, it just kind of gives you a little bit of a flavor of where that article from the Quincy Institute is coming from. These are some of the um, board of directors people, uh, people on the board. We have, it's an interesting mix. We have Stephen Heinz to the lower left there. He's president of the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. And some lesser names that we haven't heard so much. Uh, the chairman of the board, Andrew Besovich, uh, the lower uh, right of this um, set of pictures, we have Stephen Walt, and he's with Foreign Policy Magazine. That's part of the think tank universe, you might say. And the middle one in the bottom, interesting, a Bilderberg attendee, Jessica Tuchman Matthews of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, whose meetings I've covered before in person. So that's some of the interesting names uh, with this particular source. Here's a little bit more about what they have to say. There's little to suggest that Israel or Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu seek to widen the war in the view of this of this article and, and the Quincy Institute. The chaos in Israel and his government's failure to not only prevent the attack, but also manage its aftermath, defies the idea that he was preparing or yearning for a larger war, in their view. Israel would indeed find itself in a precarious situation if it ends up in a two-front war with Hezbollah attacking Israel from the north. There's also nothing to suggest in the view of these writers that Hezbollah desires a war with Israel either, despite the Wall Street Journal reporting that Hamas had coordinated the attack with Hezbollah and Iran. Hamas alone attacked Israel in the view of this article, and there was no simultaneous or subsequent large-scale attack from the north. Given Lebanon's dire economic situation, uh, war with Israel would risk bringing the entire nation of Lebanon, uh, Lebanon into the, uh, to the breaking point economically. Uh, so it, uh, this is a different perspective, some things that we maybe aren't hearing much right now. Moving on from there, similarly, there's no evidence that Tehran would benefit from a large war. As a European diplomat put it to me, that's the um, writer I named, Mr. Partsy, Iran prefers a low-intensity conflict with Israel, not open warfare. The regime in Tehran has just survived one of the greatest challenges to its rule and appears relieved that the anniversary of the killing of Masha Amini did not reignite these protests there in Iran on a large scale. Tehran has also taken the unusual step of sending a message to Israel through the UN, stressing that it seeks to avoid further escalation, we're being told here. It has, however, warned that it would be compelled to intervene if Israel continues bombing Gaza. So there's sort of a, a two-tiered reasoning going on there. And uh, finally, the Arab states in the region from Egypt to Syria to Saudi Arabia have nothing to gain and much to lose from a larger war. So uh, this is an inter interesting perspective to take into account, and we'll move on from there. Uh, the White House is well aware of the escalation risks that are involved. At a meeting earlier this year between two senior American officials and a high-level rep of the Iranian government, one of the Americans warned Tehran that if it enriched uranium to 90% purity, the U.S. would strike Iran militarily. Without skipping a beat, the Iran, Iranian official responded that Iran would respond immediately by destroying 14 American bases in the region by raining tens of thousands of rockets on them. 
And it is in this context that the Biden administration's refusal to call for de-escalation and a ceasefire in the current Israeli uh, Israeli Hamas situation, or to physically or to practically pressure Israel to exercise its right to defend itself within the confines of international law, is so problematic. It is not just the moral bankruptcy of the Biden White House to stand in the way of efforts to end the crisis. Uh, it it is not the it is not the blatant disregard for human life shown by the White House when it's <clears throat> when its spokespersons blast Democratic lawmakers advocating for a ceasefire and calls them repugnant. And moving on from there, uh, as Ben Rhodes from the Obama White House put it in his podcast this past week, counseling, restraint, and calls to follow the laws of war are not to show a lack of regard for what Israel has gone through. On the contrary. It's, it's kind of what I wish someone would have done for the United States after 9-11. But Biden is not only giving Israel bad advice, he's, he's giving Israel bad advice that risks getting thousands of Americans killed in yet another senseless and preventable war in the Middle East. If Biden lacks the humanity to call for a ceasefire to prevent the killing of thousands of Palestinians, he should at least not abdicate his responsibility as president of the U.S. to keep Americans out of the killing zone. So this gives you a little bit of a, a flavor for what that think tank, the Quincy Institute, uh, has to say. Uh, readers can make up their mind. Viewers can make up their mind in terms of what that contributes to the conversation. And from there, uh, kind of exploring some other viewpoints and uh, kind of winding up my segment here, the former Treasury official under under Ronald Reagan, Paul Craig Roberts, uh, he went a little more broadly, as UK Column tries to do. We look at these issues as broadly as possible and let our viewers make up their minds. He says, I do agree with readers that it seems a curious thing for Hamas to do as it has done and play into Israel's hands. I also agree there's something strange about the attack, and this echoes what David was talking about. How did drones and so many rockets allegedly from Iran and some say Ukraine get into the Gaza Strip in the first place, and how did the Hamas attackers get them into Israel, or get into Israel, rather? How did the attackers get into Israel? The Hamas attack has something of 9-11's flavor. Just as every aspect of the U.S. national security state failed simultaneously on September 11 of 01, uh, Israel's security system also, including the Iron Dome the U.S. constructed for Israel, simultaneously and reportedly failed. Mysteriously, the Hamas, Hamas fighters entered Israel on the ground and through the air and, and on the sea without being detected. Mysteriously, large quantities of weapons entered Palestine through Israel without being detected. This is much too convenient uh, of a failure to be believable, in Paul Craig Roberts' opinion. It'll be interesting to see if anyone in Israel is held accountable for the total security failure that we've all heard about. So I think I'll leave it at, at that point there, uh, gentlemen. But this uh, this raises uh, uh, you know some broader perspective perspectives on this that our viewers can take into account. Okay, thank you very much for that, Mark. And uh, we're just going to come back to you, uh, David, briefly. Uh, how to respond to Israel and Gaza? You've, you've just got a few thoughts yeah. here. Yeah. So a few a few thoughts from a few a few thinkers. So here we have uh, an article from the the We Flee who is a Free Church of Scotland minister currently based in Australia, but uh, formerly from Dundee. So uh, I've just taken the basically the, the summary points here from a, a longer article. So he says, how to respond to Israel-Gaza? 
So he's got some advice. One, never excuse or add a but to the atrocities of Hamas. I would, I would personally, I would suggest the, the, the following words should be and, um, not but. So don't glorify the violence or spread the horror. Don't forget the suffering of the people in Gaza. And he also says, don't use the doctrine of equivalence. This is what so many have done, including the English Premier League. They argue that what's happened to the Jews was horrible, but now look at what's happening to the Palestinians, that violence begets violence, and somehow the two sides are essentially the same. Uh, I would also add to this, the, the, related to this is the idea of a proportionate response, which is an, an appalling idea that is presumably murder for murder, rape for rape. Right? The, none of these ideas are, are, are sound. He goes on, uh, remember the hatred towards the Jews and why Israel exists as a country. We might discuss that more next extra time. And he concludes, pray and weep. So that's the point of view from Protestant Christian pastor from Scotland, um, currently in Australia. Um, I think an even more essential view actually has come from my dear friend Gilad Atzman. Um, so I have his, his, his thoughts here. He says, it's important for me to clarify my position, although I don't think there are many in Israel who are willing or ready to listen. I do understand the Israeli frustration, the fear, the anger, the revengeful feelings, but this is exactly the point to break away from violence, not to answer aggression with more aggression, not to poke a thousand eyes for an eye. It was Jesus Christ who understood that breaking the cycle of violence involves turning the other cheek not being the last one to hit, but accepting being the first one, being the last one to get hit. I call upon Israelis and Zionists in particular, those who were dreaming as I dreamed in my youth to become a people like all other people. This is probably the last opportunity to do so. Now more than ever, you must fight your desire to destroy the region in the name of your survival. Now is the time to throw flowers on Gaza, Beirut and Damascus, beat your swords into plowshares. I guess that Israelis who can understand what I'm saying here have long ago left Israel. But as Golda Meir once said about the Palestinians, I also don't miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. I speak my heart. Um, so I, 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 think that's, I think that's very good. Um, and I sadly think he's probably right. There will be few listening. Um, but uh, would that they did. Um, I'm just going to say, David, uh, you know, I take the point that you've of everything you've just said there but my issue with both those pieces is actually there's no recognition uh there and i'm not taking sides here when i say this but there is no recognition in either of those statements about the regime that that palestinians have been living under for decades and so you know we just gotta uh keep in mind that when we are looking for peace if we're using words like they have been using. There, there needs to be a recognition of, of, of the Palestinian plight as well, I think. Uh, but that's just a personal comment. Okay. Well, I, I, would, I, would, I, would certainly, I would certainly say from Gillard's point of view, he absolutely does recognise that plight. Okay. Yeah. Okay, thank you, David. Uh, well, let's uh, move on to, if you like what we're doing, join us. Um, we're very keen, of course, for more people to be watching UK Column and sharing our material. And if you join us and subscribe, um, you can join in the community and talk to many other people who are very grateful for new faces, new voices, new opinions. 
You can purchase at the shop. Um, if you haven't been there before, take a look because that will help us. And a very key thing for us is to share our material because what we publish is designed to be shared far and wide to uh, get facts, information, and at least the UK column analysis out. Uh, a reminder, tomorrow evening, uh, beginning 6 p.m. UK time, 7 p.m. European time, that's 1 p.m. Eastern time in the United States, uh, we're hosting a 5G expose uh, on behalf of ourselves, children's health, defence, and uh, uh, and so on. So do join us for that. And a reminder that on Friday, uh, Andrew Bridgen will be addressing the public uh, on Friday the 20th outside at Parliament Square following his debate in Parliament. If you haven't uh, challenged your MP yet on whether they will be attending this debate, uh, I encourage everybody to do that. Uh, but in any case, anybody that's in the London area or anybody that wants to travel from further afield, uh, get down on the 20th on Friday uh, from 2pm Parliament Square and uh, support Andrew Bridgen on this uh, this exercise. Okay, thank you for that, Mike. And uh, just emphasise how difficult this thing is. We were sent an email, I'm not going to read all of it out, but essentially a lady had uh, been chasing uh, her MP, uh, asking her whether she was actually going to go to the Bridgen event. She didn't get satisfactory responses, so she th took it to a local council councillor level and uh, she was pushed away pretty strongly, whilst in broad terms, I agree that one must always be careful of the veracity of information. I think I could either make the same point about the sources originally supplied. This is information which the lady put forward to support the importance of, of uh, Andrew Bridgen's event, but also would highlight that your suggestion would require the deliberate corruption of all individuals working at all levels for fact-checking checking organisations like Full Fact, as well as NGOs, charities, worldwide health bodies, etc. This seems unlikely, or such seems unlikely. Uh, Pro Professor Dalgleish is, was politically active within UKIP, and that some odd claims about him have recently been published. I won't do any more because you can freeze it and have a look, but it shows you the uh, complete blinkered approach that we've got, not only in national politics, but in local politics, where local councillors, as in this case, simply will not, not look at the facts and information put forward. Nevertheless, it's still worth doing. And a big thank you to the lady who took that action and sent it through to the UK column. Um, we'll also uh, put out, uh, well, one of the final calls for the Alternative View Conference, which is uh, this coming Sunday. This is in Milton Keynes in the Leonardo Hotel. I will be one of the speakers. And uh, this will be an important event for me because I will be handing over um, to Gary Fraun to uh, lead these events from here on. But UK Column is delighted to have supported uh, Ian Crane's last wishes, which was that we should help him to keep his live events going. And of course, free speech is a, an important part of that. Now, this is a, an important news announcement, which uh, really broke uh, for me very early this morning. And that is that Reiner Fulmick uh, has been arrested. Well, not only arrested, he's been arrested and uh, transported to Germany, where he's currently in prison with some 30 pages of charges against him. Uh, and this event happened when he and his wife tried to get their passports renewed in Mexico, where they were residing. Uh, Reiner's wife was able to get a passport, but when he went into the building to get his, 
he was seized by some six men. So I think really serious times now in, uh, in uh, Europe as a whole, certainly in Germany. But as we're going to see, uh, is UK any better? I don't think so. Now, whilst the events in the Middle East can uh, occupy our thoughts and minds, there are other very important things going on which we need to keep an eye on. And a big thank you to the UK column viewer that uh, pointed me in the direction of this pres uh, Press Gazette article, uh, Who Owns the News? Mail Titles, News UK and Reach Dominate Report Finds. Now, this is a fascinating article because you read it on your first read and you say, yes, they're really digging in some interesting stuff. So there's a lot of statistics showing the share of circulation, for example, here uh, with DMG Media News UK, 42, 33% reach with 16%, Telegraph Media way down at 5%, but it's showing the power of certain news organizations and the statistics go on. The top five publishers control over half of UK online news reach. The top three publishers account for 70% of revenue among major publishers. The local news has also become highly concentrated. And then it talks about the technical side of news, uh, where Facebook is uh, apparently uh, hitting 33% of the population. BBC, 28%, so immensely powerful. YouTube, Google, Twitter, Instagram, WhatsApp following before you get down to the likes of the Daily Mail at about 11%. So do have a look at these statistics. But I went deeper because I always like to know who's warning us. And the warning really came from this organization, the Media Reform Coalition, briefly mentioned in the original article, but no real comment on what it is. So when you go to Media Reform Coalition's website, our media is broken. Be part of the movement to fix it. Uh, leading the fight for a media fit for the 21st century. Well, who is actually saying this and making these claims? So I decided to have a little look into it. And of course, we're getting we're getting an oversight pretty quickly here because we got Mr. Leveson from the Leveson Inquiry. Uh, but here's some of the history throughout our campaigning during the Leveson Inquiry. We argued that we couldn't just rely on better press regulation to improve standards um, of newspapers. We, ha we have also had to challenge the disproportionate power these corporations held because um, this is their site. It's not my text, so I'm having to interpret it little bit here because they control so much of our news media. And uh, so we, we're getting an inkling here. We're bringing a bit more. But now we can see that media reform worked with the National Union of Journalists and hacked off to hold fringe meetings and dinners. So this is an, a lobbying group. And should we trust it? Well, um, we can put this up on screen, but it says that MRC is largely run on a voluntary basis, but we're grateful for funding to pursue specific research projects, disseminate research findings, etc., promote our core values. And then who is supporting them? Well, the first one in, is the Joseph, Joseph Roundtree Charitable Trust, the Joseph Roundtree Reform Trust, and here we've got open society foundations. So at this point, I become a lot more suspicious about who is really driving the agenda for new press and media 
and can we trust them? My response is, I don't think we can. Surprisingly, when I went to look at the page, who we are, uh, up came the message, sorry, this page does not exist or has been removed for legal reasons. So there's obviously some dark secrets behind this organization and uh, we'll stay on the case, but it's clear that uh, not only is media, uh, legacy media and press in UK broken, but we've now got these powerful think tanks paid by some pretty wealthy trust funds who are going to tell us what sort of media we should have. And in my opinion, that will be with more government control. David, I'll pass over to you because uh, whether the media is bad or not, the media is reporting on trouble inside the SNP. Trouble inside the SNP, which really exposes quite a lot of what the SNP is. So this is the story of Dr. Lisa Cameron. Uh, she is uh, MP for uh, the area around East Kilbride, uh, Straven, that sort of part of uh, Lanarkshire. She has quit and she has joined the Conservatives. Um, she said, I, don't, I do not feel able to continue in what I have experienced as a toxic and bullying SNP Westminster group, which resulted in my requiring counselling for a period of 12 months and caused significant deterioration in my health and well-being. Uh, she says, I will never regret my actions in standing up for a victim of abuse at the hands of an SNP MP last year, but I have no faith in remaining the party whose leadership supported the perpetrator's interests over the victims, and have shown little or no interest in acknowledging or addressing the impact. So this is Patrick Grady MP, uh, who um, uh, admitted um, uh, having... Um, unwanted, uninvited sexual advances on a teenage party worker. Uh, the teenage party worker uh, complained about this and ultimately um, uh, Mr Grady was suspended for a period uh, but nothing else happened to him and the teenage worker rather got left to deal with all of the attacks that he was getting from party supporters and all the rest of it and was left in a pretty unenviable position. So... Um, uh, she, she can she concludes, uh, being the SB, SNP has been bad for my health. Uh, I want to thank everyone who's reached out to me to uh, and wishes to see politics where victim blaming and abuse is never tolerated. So how has this gone down? Well, not well. Um, how dare she? Um, reports one newspaper here, uh, quoting Humza saying she probably never believed in independence. Right, That's the ultimate slur in SNP land. Um, we're considering legislation to make it illegal to do what she's done. Legislation to stop MPs defecting is worth pursuing, says legal expert. However, human rights law uh, may prove a barrier. You don't say. Um, uh, and uh, when she made this announcement, it didn't get much better. Uh, she had to warn her five staff to avoid coming into work at her constituency office for fear of... Um, being subject to uh, abuse and assault. Um, now, when she's delved into this a little bit deep, more deeply, uh, she said, uh, it's almost like with the SNP, you sort of get indoctrinated a bit. I feel in an unhealthy way, and your identity gets merged with the doctrine. It's like, here's what you think about things. There's not so much, in my experience, individual choice and decision-making or contribution. It becomes like a, um, a learned helplessness in a way. 
Uh, it took a long time for me to rebuild my confidence to even speak about these things. It does feel quite cult-like in that sense. So she absolutely understands what she's been dealing with, what she's been part of now. Um, she was attacked um, by other members of the SNP, including uh, Mary McCallum, who didn't believe, found it very difficult to believe there was anything really up with her uh, mental health. That was touching. Now, um, uh, Mark might be interested as to what is actually at the root of this, because it's not simply standing up for one victim of sexual assault in, uh, by an MP. Um, there's something much, much bigger at the root of it. The reason that they've been going after Lisa Cameron for years is because Lisa Cameron is a Christian and Lisa Cameron opposes abortion. That's, the, that's, that's what actually broke her relationship with the party and started the attacks. We've got the Belfast newsletter here reporting, SNP MP Lisa Cameron fears deselection after voting against Northern Ireland abortion reform. That's what kicked it off. Uh, later, she, uh, the National here reports, Lisa Cameron says English abortion vote was a matter of conscience. She's been criticised by, camp by campaigners uh, for voting against a bill that have banned protests outside English abortion clinics. So it, it's actually all about the, the, the case of abortion. It's actually all about she's Christian and Christianity is not welcome in the SNP. It's not welcome in any left-wing woke party. and. Um, it's being hounded out of society. Um, and those who stand up for these ideas, ideas like life, uh, will be attacked and uh, abused in the way that uh, Lisa Cameron has had to endure. Okay, well, sticking with politics, but moving across the United States, uh, we'll talk about a bit more about this in Extra, but just to let everybody know that the Kennedy campaign, uh, yes, uh, on the 13th announced this. Uh, today, the Kennedy campaign announced a new campaign manager, uh, Amaryllis uh, Kennedy. Amaryllis, previously the Kennedy campaign's co-manager, will take the role of campaign manager beginning today. And this is because Dennis Kucinich, uh, the Democrat, uh, has resigned effectively from the Kennedy campaign. It says here, Dennis Kucinich has been a moral center in American politics for more than five decades. Uh, this campaign would never have uh, experienced tremendous success during the past six months, except for the leadership wisdom experience he brought. We will continue to profit from his advice and judgment as we go forward. Well, the question is, why has he resigned? And uh, my understanding is it's because of Kennedy's position on Israel in particular. Uh, but uh, just to mention who uh, Amaryllis is, here she is. Uh, she is uh, Robert Kennedy Jr.'s daughter-in-law. Uh, and uh, well, Irish Central here reporting uh, that she's led a fascinating and influential life all before the age of 40. Uh, she is a former CIA operative, seven years, I believe, she was in the CIA as a clandestine service officer. Uh, so we can talk about a little bit more about this in extra, but that seems like a very uh, interesting uh, lady, shall we say? Indeed, yeah. So that, that uh, campaign is going to go in interesting directions, I think. Well, we've come back onto the subject of uh, America and, and uh, we'll jump from there back to UK. Um, this is a subject which I feel very strongly about. I live in UK. I regard myself as British English, depending on who I'm talking about. Um, but I have been more and more concerned with the fact that our politicians are pushing policies which 
I believe don't benefit UK in the first instance. So uh, we've got here this express headline, which I saw uh, over the weekend. Britain is with you, not just today, but always. Sunak's unwavering support for Israel. As Corbyn joins thousands of Brits marching in support of Palestinians just a week after Hamas butchered Jews, Sunak gives a clear message. Uh, now, I'll just add the words in, always unwavering support. And I have a question. Does this mean um, whatever Israel does, Israel can do whatever it likes and Sunak's report is unwavering? This is, seems to be what he's indicating and I take issue with this. He said, no words can begin to describe the horror and barbarism unleashed in Israel a week ago. British citizens were among the victims, and as we continue to learn more, I know there are families here and in Israel in deep pain and torment. My thoughts and my heart go out to everyone suffering in the wake of these attacks. I know that the days and weeks ahead will continue to be very difficult. To the people of Israel, I say Britain is with you. What took place was an act of pure evil, and Israel has every right to defend itself. We will do everything we can to support Israel in restoring the security it deserves. To our Jewish community in the UK, I know you are hurting and reeling from these vile terrorist acts. We will do everything we can possibly do uh, to protect Jewish people in our country. And if anything is standing in the way of keeping the Jewish community safe, we will fix it. And uh, that isn't the end of it. He's unequivocal. We stand with Israel, not just today, not just tomorrow, but always. And I stand with you, the British Jewish community, not just today, not just tomorrow, but always. So this is immensely powerful. And my question is, to whom does its loyalty lie? Uh, the question of, uh, sorry, the country of which he's um, uh, prime minister, the UK, or to Israel. And if it's uh, both of them, then clearly that is unlikely to, to work. And uh, does UK count anymore? Now, it isn't just Mr. Sunak, because we've got Keir Starmer quoted in the same article. I've met with members, <coughs> excuse me, of the British Jewish community and told them that we stand with Israel and with them at this time. There must be zero tolerance of any increase in anti-Semitism or Islamophobia. Hamas has no interest in peace, no interest in protecting the Palestinians. Now, he's spread his message a little bit, but remember, this man is under the control of uh, Tony Blair, in my opinion, at least. And we've already demonstrated Tony Blair's part in uh, uh, Labour Friends of Israel. So again, we're not sure who this man is working for. Is it the people in UK or is it for... Well, I think we do know the answer to that. Well, it's Davos, okay. isn't it, the World Economic <laughs> he, Forum? He, he's already said this, but I make the point. Yes. And uh, I'm just going to add this one in. And again, a big thank you to a viewer who alerted uh, me to this. This is the Institute of Government um, pointing out that a lot of MPs, a lot of MPs are standing down at the next general election. 48 Conservative, 14 Labour, 8 Scottish National Party and 3 Independents. Now, I must say that some of them are being forced to resign because of boundary changes. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, we seem to be seeing MPs uh, fleeing a sinking ship. And uh, I think this must say something about how they see the regime in Westminster. Perhaps, David, 
some of these MPs now see Westminster as another cult itself, but we can have further discussion on that. Now, let's end by coming back to Mark, and I think you've got a piece on birth rates. Yeah, uh, a minute ago, David talked about the Christian influence in government being uh, basically blocked. Well, this is interesting uh, to expand on that perspective. Birth rates have dropped around the world, according to zmescience.com here, 12 October, in the past two centuries. This started in France earlier than in other places, and researchers now know why. And uh, we can move on from there to kind of give the short version of this. This was written by Gulami Blanc. He's a assistant economics professor right there at the University of Manchester, and that's who wrote this article. We'll move on from there. Blanc believes, well, excuse me, the article is about him. Someone else penned the article, but Blanc is the main source. I stand corrected. Blanc believes it has a lot to do with religion, the uh, population phenomenon. In his research, he used crowdsourced genealogies to comprehensively document the decline in fertility and identify its origins for the first time. Quote, according to Blanc, in aggregate level evidence, relying on the work of historians, I document an important process of secularization that took hold at the same time in France. With de-Christianization in the mid-18th century, the Catholic Church lost influence and could not oppose fertility control, coitus interruptus, hmm, interesting, anymore, the researcher adds. And we'll move on from there. Um, this is another angle on it. Um, Gretchen Whitmer, the current governor of Michigan, probably the most laughable, comical governor, and in a way dangerous governor this state has ever had the misfortune to have. Uh, meanwhile, she's launching a nationwide talent recruitment effort to address stagnant, stagnant population growth. You see, the globalist elitist gentlemen, they have to redistribute people just like they redistribute money, right? If you don't have enough people, well, bring them in from other countries, legally or illegally, always shuffling people around the world, never having stable nation states. Uh, Michigan is launching a $20 million nationwide marketing initiative aimed at boosting the state's decades-long, decades-long sluggish population growth by attracting and retaining young talent from other parts of the U.S. and abroad. The campaign, which was unveiled by Gretchen Whitmer, our lovely governor, will include television, radio, and online advertisements in 11 states. It'll be the largest state-led talent attraction effort in the U.S., according to the state's Economic Development Board. But I note at the bottom here, and I, I confirmed these statistics, in Michigan, it, there, there have been 2,560 more abortions in just the first half of this year compared to all of last year. And last year, there were 30,120 abortions in Michigan. And elites, as I say, seek to redistribute people as opposed to the answer to this, at least a part of it, and that is the uh, archaic concept of childbirth. Uh, the birth rates we know have been dangerously low in Japan, dangerously low in Italy, um, entire villages basically closing down in Italy and other parts of the world. And so we see the elite schematic here at work, redistributing people and enforcing an abortion regime, which included last year Proposition 3 being propagandized against the voters. It managed to get approved in Michigan, and that makes the so-called right to abortion, which has never really existed as an actual right, it, it enshrined it in the state state of Michigan's constitution. So Gretchen Whitmer, 
is uh, continuing the, you might say, de-Christianization in her part that Mr. Blanc found to be a major source of population uh, decline in Europe. So it's just an interesting perspective on um, the effects of abortion. The SNP kicked out the uh, the legislator a little while ago about this very issue. And the re-Christianization of these countries would presumably have the opposite effect and bring back a robust growth in population that would not involve simply redistributing people. So it's it's very instructive to look at this. Okay, well, I'm sure we can talk about that a bit more in extra as well. Uh, David, let's end then uh, with Canada. Yes, uh, not uh, in any mainstream news source that I could find out, completely missing from them all, uh, but uh, not missing from Andrew Bridgen's Twitter feed. God bless him. Um, Lewis, uh, uh, Leslie Lewis, a Conservative MP in Canada, uh, has started an online petition to take Canada out of the UN and the World Health Organization and Agenda 2030. So he's calling on people to support the petition. We should have a little look. So here's the petition. It says uh, Canada's membership of the UN and subsidiary organisations such as the WHO imposes negative consequences on the people of Canada far outweighing any benefits. Canada's agreement to participate in Agenda 2030 undermines national sovereignty and personal autonomy. Um, 20, uh, Agenda 2030 and its sustainable development goals uh, comprehensive sexuality education, UN judicial review, international health regulations, One Health and similar programmes are being rapidly implemented, absent the awareness and consent of the people. And on it goes. And he concludes, we the undersigned citizens and residents of Canada call upon the House of Commons in Parliament assembled to urgently implement Canada's expeditious withdrawal from the UN and all of its subsidiary organisations, including the World Health Organisation. Now. This is music to my ears. It's also a first, I think. I don't think I've seen anything come before any parliament, even in petition form or any other form, calling this effectively uh, with significant public support to remove the country from the UN and all that goes with it. So a little data point that people are waking up, people are pushing back, and uh, people are finding their voices, and uh, it's not all bad news today. Okay, David, thank you very much. And a very big thank you to all our viewers and listeners today for joining us for uh, another difficult news. There's so much happening. The news is all bad, very graphic, a lot of it deeply unpleasant, but it needs to be reported if at the end of the day, um, people are going to stand up and call for peace and an end to the violence and that's what's needed so wherever you are in the world thank you very much for watching uk column share the information and uh, if you're part of our subscriber group join us in a few minutes for extra uh, where we are going to be discussing more on the middle east we've got some very interesting little video clips uh, where people are making comment and uh, we, we've got other material besides so if you're able to do that, join us in a few minutes for UK Column Extra. See you then. Bye-bye.